0: Rehabilitation technology is crucial to improving quality of life for patients across a wide spectrum of mobility, injury, and capability. Interventions touch many different types of people recovering from spinal cord injuries and other mobility-limiting conditions, or facing traumatic cases of stroke or cerebral palsy. In targeting these conditions with rehabilitation interventions, Dr. Paolo Bonato and his team at Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital utilize an approach that first assesses a patient's movements and possible impairments and what technology would best suit them. Then, the goal is to make the improved movement as mechanically efficient and productive as possible. Dr. Paolo Bonato is an associate professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Harvard Medical School. And director of the Motional Analysis Laboratory at Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital. Welcome to the show Dr. Bonato. Thank you. So you're a medical engineer and work in clinical and technical rehabilitation technology. Could you tell us about the types of patients you work with?
1: Absolutely. So yeah, I'm a biomedical engineer by training. I started my career Uh, as an electrical engineer. I got my master in electrical engineering and then uh, my PhD in biomedical engineering and since the very beginning of my career I have uh, focused my work on technology for rehabilitation and what that is is technology that at least uh, for my line of research primarily focuses on enabling uh, movement increasing mobility in individuals with mobility-limiting conditions, such as a spinal cord injury, or a stroke, or a traumatic brain injury, or things that affect, unfortunately, individuals in the early phases of their lives, like cerebral palsy for a pediatric population.
0: When you went into electrical engineering, did you imagine you would End up doing biomedical engineering. How did you transition from that?
1: Yeah, I didn't know that. I had a passion <laughs> for medicine uh, to begin with in high school, um, but I didn't have good memory. <laughs> so I figure <laughs> I'm not going to be able to memorize everything that I need as a physician. And at the same time, I was doing, uh, I would say, you know, decently in, in my math and science. And so, you know, there was a recommendation that I consider. Um, going to college and, and uh, take a degree that was, you know, technically oriented. Yeah. And I enjoyed I really enjoyed my math and science, you know, f- uh, since high school. And then uh, I knew that I actually really like uh, the electrical engineering aspects of it. And particularly, to be honest, the data analytics hmm. uh, more than sort of the actual sort of... Um, uh, building of hardware component and things of that nature. Although that's also part of the type of work that we do in my laboratory. It's really a combination.
0: What are the types of interventions you use to help the patients you work with?
1: So our interventions are, are structured um, more or less as follows, right? So the first step is really assessing what type of movement abnormalities or aberrant movements uh, we're dealing with and what are the causes of such uh, aberrant movements. And so we use technology to quantify that in a very accurate way. Then when we have a good grasp on uh, what the impairments are, so what are the difficulties the patients are encountering, then we have to assess whether purely just feedback, uh, the way you can think perhaps an athlete right, uh, would improve um, their performance, right, so athletes would improve their performance, right, so we will do something similar, right, and mm-hmm. so, and it would be basically, if you think of gait, would be, you know, your foot clearance is not sufficient, so as you walk, right, the subject might be not flexing their knees properly, and so they risk to trip and fall, right, and so, so those are simple interventions. There are more complex interventions where, for instance, the pathology is causing, for instance, what we call coupling in the control of multiple joints. And so that would be typical, uh, for example, in stroke, where the difficulties that you can even observe visually is that the subject will really not be able to control properly the full kinematic chain. And so what I mean by that is that you will see alterations in the control of the hip, knee, and ankle. Uh, and part of it is because the way the nervous system is affected uh, by their stroke uh, actually uh, disables, if you will, those circuits that actually allow you to control those joints either in a coordinated manner or in an independent manner. And so there is coupling that, for instance, uh, kind of forces the movement to be constrained biomechanically. And so, you know, the knee is not going to flex properly the hip is going to follow accordingly and in fact even in healthy control subjects we have shown that there is actually a joint control uh, no pun intended, right, of multiple anatomical joints uh, proximal and distance. and uh, that uh, control that's physiological gets completely disarranged by their stroke and so those are cases that are a lot more complex and in those cases we tend to use robotics to actually guide the movement.
0: Hmm. And- could you tell us a little more about, you know, what are the actual types of wearable technologies? How do you integrate the robotics into therapies? Um, kind of in words, maybe give more visuals of, of what that entails.
1: So wearable technology is essentially, in a clinical setting, is an essentially an extension of what you're probably thinking of as the pedometers and activity monitors, right? Um, The array that you get through your um, watch and things of that nature, right? And so, but what we do with that technology is a bit more complex than telling you that you got a good um, bout of activity out there, right? And so we do that as well. In certain conditions, for instance, we have a project at the moment in which we look at encouraging uh, purely just walking in individuals who unfortunately lost uh, lost their limb, lower limb, secondary to diabetes, you know, in in, in uh, severe cases, um, it's often that unfortunately these individuals will lose um, the lower limb uh, below uh, the knee. Right, so there would be a transtibial amputation, and unfortunately that population tends to be deconditioned to begin with and has to be encouraged uh, after they uh, get their prosthesis to be as active as possible. And again, that population, unfortunately, tends to be um, sitting in a wheelchair. So we have set up a program which we encourage them, actually, to get into uh, walking activities. And we use the pedometers in the same way. a ball body individual would do, right? So, so nothing special from that point of view. We do have to adjust the technology a bit. So we have our own special pedometers that we really use mm-hmm. for the purpose of. Um, detecting the patterns of motions, you know, those are, uh, of course, slightly different than the body population, etc., right? And so, so there are custom components that we have to use. But the feedback is typically provided in the same way the Fitbit of system would do, right? So very simple. So that's sort of the basic level. There is a second level of use of this technology that is more complex because we're not purely just interested in encouraging uh, movement, but we want to be sure that the movement is physiological and so as opposed to just say well mr smith you know you had unfortunately a stroke recently and we've got into a program where we encourage you to use your upper limb right that's stroke affected we also want to be sure that you do it properly and the reason why you do that is because you want to fully restore their motor abilities right so, so it's not purely a function of reaching for a uh, cup of water, right, or, or a glass, or, you know, being able to use your utensils at the table, right, in in a way that's not functional, you want actually that movement to be uh, functionally meaningful so that it's efficient, if you will, right, and so and so, you have to retrain those capabilities and so we use this sensing technology to reconstruct movement trajectories and assess essentially if the control of movement is physiological that we're actually using to restore the physiological capabilities.
0: Mm. How has wearable technology changed over the course of your career?
1: Quite a bit. (laughs) So when we started this work almost 20 years ago, um, next year is my 20 year (laughs) anniversary of the first project that we ran with wearable. We even had to explain what wearable was, Mm. right? And so in these days, that's no longer necessary. You just, you know, talk to uh, people down the street. Everybody is familiar with wearable technologies. Uh, we had to build a lot of things in-house back in those days. Uh, we were lucky; we had the opportunity to work with individuals like Matt Welsh, who used to be at Harvard Engineering, is now at Google. We had a good collaboration with a group here in town, an R&D group from Intel that eventually spun off a company that is now selling wearable technology and a number of other uh, interactions not just with intel but with another a number of other companies that got into the business so gradually we managed to build a bit less in terms of hardware Mm -hmm. and focus a bit more on using the technology in a clinically meaningful manner with a variety of patient populations so, so let's, you know, let's just give you an example right, of what we can do now, right? and so versus what we could do uh, 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Right? And so right now, for instance, with a local company, uh, it's called Biosensics, we have received funding from the National Institutes of Health to develop a system that is like a wristwatch type of unit. And that uh, stroke individuals are wearing all day long and in these individuals, we want to avoid what we call learn no news. So the fact that they are discouraged because of their impairments from using their stroke-affected limb, and therefore they would tend to use their contralateral limb uh, a lot more than they should. And the reason why I'm saying they should is because unfortunately, as they neglect to use their stroke-affected limb, you actually you lose over time Cortical territory that's associated with the control of movement of their stroke affected limb. So they get worse as opposed to get better over time. So 15 years ago, we had really bulky units, mm-hmm. and the battery, you know, we used to use double uh, A batteries, right? <laughs> Two double A batteries, right? Attached to the wow. wrist, right? And, so, and we had very little computational capability on these units that we actually strapped on the wrist so we only had the capability of running proof of concept type of projects. These days we can actually give you a wristwatch type of unit that not only is monitoring your movements but it actually analyzes the data and if we notice that you're using a lot more your contralateral side versus your stroke affected side we buzz you right Mm. we either provide you with reminders on your phone if you prefer or we vibrate essentially the unit and we tell Mr. Smith you know you have to use your stroke affected limb because otherwise you you know Mm. your rehab your rehabilitation intervention is really not going to lead to the benefits that we want for you Mm. and this is just one category of of applications Right. then we have applications in which for instance with tighter medications on the basis of what we see being the effect of motor symptoms. We do quite a bit of work in Parkinson's. We have done extensive work uh, both with NINDS, the National Institutes of uh, Neurological Disorders at NIH, as well as the Michael J. Fox Foundation, which has mm. been a terrific, really terrific partner for us.
0: How big were those watches if there were two AA
1: batteries in <laughs> They were humongous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They came with uh, a wheel card so they could actually carry. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But they were really big. We use units that I still have in the (laughs) office. They're called moats. They are really, really big, right? And so, I mean, you can barely fit actually that on a wrist uh, of. A person of good body size, right? And so (laughs) uh, they're just ridiculous, to be honest, right? And so, but it was very useful for us Mm -hmm. to have access to that technology in the early days because we started exploring the potential of the technology and that justify investing into miniaturizing it mm-hmm. with the characteristics that we want, right? And so these days, you know, you can use the research kit that's uh, platformed platform by Apple, right? And so, mm-hmm. and you can do a lot of things with that, but you know, partially the way these platforms have been developed by these big companies Mm -hmm. takes at least uh, partially into account the work that the community has done in that area. So the reason why they have certain features is because we have published extensively in this area and we have shown that there is a strong interest for monitoring certain aspects of movement or certain aspects of the physiology of the individual, for instance, mm-hmm. cardiovascular function, respirat- cardiorespiratory in general, right? that could really benefit patients a great deal.
0: So what if you go through the assessment process with a patient and realize that robotics and wearable technologies are, are not going to be um, the most effective treatment for them? What are Mm -hmm. the other strategies you utilize?
1: So we often need to look into boosting capabilities, right? And so that's an excellent question. So what if we see, for instance, in the individual post-stroke that their control of muscles is completely disarranged and just providing feedback, um, whether it's active feedback through the robotics or uh, visual feedback or auditory cues through wearable technology, there is no uh, effective change in their motor patterns. Right. So what do you do in those cases? Well, you need to understand what are the deficiencies that you want to address. One that we are exploring is the possibility that the reason why the control of movement is deficient is because of the lack of some of the neurotransmitters that are necessary for both controlling movements, as well as for learning. And one that's very important is dopamine. Uh, And it's something that we're really focusing quite a bit. And there are a number of trials out there on combining pharmacotherapies, physical therapies, feedback modalities, robotics, Mm -hmm. etc. We're particularly attracted by the idea that we will be able to uh, assess what we call dopamine tone which is essentially based on genotyping individuals, right? So, so you run certain tests. You can tell that the specific individual you're working with uh, after a stroke has difficulties learning because of dopamine deficiency, so what we call it a, a low dopamine tone. And then you use a, a drug that's actually utilized in Parkinson's, right? Uh, you provide them, essentially, you prescribe them uh, levodopa. Uh, Typical levodopa, cabidopa, right? And so Sinemet would be uh, the, the drug name, right? And so, and you get people on Sinemet, you know, 100 milligrams a day, right? Which is a relatively low dosage, right? Certainly would be low for Parkinson's, but that we anticipate to be sufficient to reboost capabilities. So the hope would be that if you see that the coupling of these modules that control movement at the spinal level is in place and you can disrupt it with purely haptic feedback or, or visual feedback or auditory cues then by using a pharmacotherapy in combination with these other technologies you will restore the type of capability
0: mm-hmm.
1: another technique that we use is neuromodulation we are lucky at Harvard Medical School we have uh, really giants in this area, Alvaro Pascual Leon, uh, mm-hmm. here just next door at, at BI, is one of the founding fathers, essentially, of the discipline. In our department, we have one of his trainees, who is now an associate professor, Felipe Freni, who is extremely well-known in this area. And so what we do is that we essentially inject very small currents at different levels of the uh, central nervous system can be directly in cortical areas, right? We do the equivalent of attaching your cortex to a small A battery right? and injecting a very very small current and what that does is that it facilitates membrane polarization right? and so what that means is that your neurons will be encouraged trying to be more active. And of course, that's very positive if what you're trying to do is to restore the control of movement of areas that have been at least partially compromised by a stroke or a traumatic brain injury and you're just trying to get the neurons to work again. And so you deliver these small currents that actually facilitate them um, to be active. So you excite them essentially, you're giving them a boost. And by doing so, yeah, it's again another technique that we're using to boost capabilities when purely feedback modalities that are more traditional are not sufficient.
0: Um, so you talked about this quite a bit in, in a few of the answers you gave, but what is the what is the importance of thinking about technology and biology together in your
1: research? Yeah, that's actually quite fundamental. In fact, the major advances that we see in rehabilitation um, are a combination of these two fields. I often like to say the future of physical medicine rehabilitation is in a combination of biology and technology. Um, we have seen uh, tremendous advantages, uh, advances in regenerative medicine, in pharmacotherapies, in the combination of stimulation and neural interfaces, and um, drugs that are actually delivered locally, if you will, right? And so for instance, the more recent results, the colleagues uh, here in the US on the West Coast, as well in Europe, uh, in Switzerland, at the PFL, have achieved in spinal cord injury are really phenomenal. And they're based on epidural stimulation, so delivering uh, stimulation using ad hoc special devices to the spine uh, around the injury typically, right, of, of the spine or individuals with spinal cord injury. And at the same time, time either delivering locally dopamine, for instance, or dop- dop- dopamine energy drugs, right? And so um, as well as systemically um, encouraging or prescribing medications that actually facilitate essentially the restoration of neural circuits, that kind of bypass, if you will, that go around the lesion. So, you know, in that case, what happens is that often, even if clinically we consider a spinal injury to be complete, it's actually the byproduct or the result of two lesions at different levels, right, that are incomplete. And so there is no direct path, if you will. You can think of the spine as a conduit, right? And you can think the damage to be on the right side and the left side at two different levels, right? And so if you look in in the conduit, there is no continuity, right? So there is really nothing that um, you can work with that would go straight, essentially, through the spine. And of course, I'm a bit oversimplifying this, right? But there is a possibility of actually going around it, right? And so you can actually get... Um, to restore a, a good um, functional capability by using these combinations of stimulations and pharmacotherapies and movement. And so, so these uh, findings or, or, or these potential way to restore uh, the ability of controlling lower limbs in individuals with spinal cord injuries was actually discovered by um, using animal models and uh, but our colleagues on the west coast as well at UCLA as well the APFL folks they got essentially um, animal models that they put on treadmills They caused the damage, they did the implant and then they put them on treadmill with robotics and it's this is typically rats right and so and they got these, uh, you know kind of funny looking robots to get the rats to to actually walk right and you know with their front paws up right and so and they walk toward you know uh, swiss cheese typically right and so Right and things of that nature, and it's it's amazing just to see over time how they actually recover their capabilities on that basis. And so, experimentation human subjects of those techniques is still limited. We just got the group that I mentioned; uh, they published two beautiful papers in Nature and Nature Neuroscience, and it's only the first three cases um, using that technique. Uh, they were, you know, sort of disclosed to the scientific community at the beginning of this month. But I see that as an opportunity to actually do something phenomenal for our patients. That I believe is going to be more and more um, readily available across at least the top-ranked uh, clinical sites uh, in the U.S.
0: Could you talk about what new technologies are on the horizon? Um, how do you see the future developing in this field? Maybe even what your lab is working on and looking towards the future?
1: Yeah, so one of the technology that we're working on is certainly robotics, and there is a lot happening in that area. Again, here at Harvard, we are incredibly lucky. We have individuals who have been pioneers in this area. Uh, as you know, i affiliated with the VIS Institute, and the VIS Institute has been at the mm-hmm. forefront of this area. Designing systems that use soft robotics, so as opposed to have rigid components that are certainly cumbersome to dawn and doff, and you know uncomfortable to wear during the day. What if you had essentially cables running through your pants, right, and actually helping you to walk? Connor Walsh here at Harvard Engineering actually has done a substantial amount of work in that area. Uh, what if you had robotic systems that are service robot? that have soft interfaces, so that's actually really easy to manipulate objects. Rob Wood has done quite substantial work in this area again, mm-hmm. here at Harvard Engineering at the Davis Institute, so we're incredibly lucky we have these opportunities, and we keep uh, testing and pursuing the application of these technologies in uh, our patient population. There are then other uh, techniques, um, or other technologies that are of tremendous interest for us, and primarily I would say Those are the technologies that interface directly with the nervous system. That happens both at the peripheral level as well as the central level. A few years ago, again, Harvard is a great place to be from that point of view. uh, Our colleagues at MGH were part of a large study that experimented with intracortical arrays in human subjects and uh, across the board, I would say, uh, in town in general, right? And so we have quite a few experts essentially in techniques that consist of plugging directly into your peripheral nerve, right? And so, you know, if you feel like, if you think of, if I can trivialize it for a second uh, just to make it easy um, to capture what we're trying to do, right, imagine your usb port right and so you plug that into your computer right and so can you do the same with your peripheral nervous system Mm -hmm. and the reality is that you can it's a lot more complex of course right and it does require specific technologies it does require still a lot of experimentation this is not something that's unfortunately readily available to our patients it's not something that we can do clinically as yet Uh, But it's something that is really happening, I believe it's around the corner, and you can easily imagine the tremendous advantages of it, right? So what if you have an amputation, unfortunately, right? And then you're using a prosthesis, and the only type of proprioception, so the only type of sense that you have of what the prosthesis is doing is because of your skin that interfaces with the socket that's attached to your prosthesis, right? But what if you could actually use a USB port that goes into your nerve? and actually tells you that you are stepping on an object that's uneven, and so that's the way your able-bodied individuals with the intact anatomy would respond to a potential slippery surface and would manage to keep his balance, right? And so falls are common in, unfortunately, in an individuals. Uh, that lost a limb, a lower limb, right? And the reason is because you lack that proprioception. What if we could restore it? There are now companies out there, not just uh, research labs, that are actually doing that type of work. And so those are the technologies where we can really integrate, if you will, the human body with the electronics and the robotics, right? And uh, get them to work in a really symbiotic way by which we can fully restore capabilities of our patient population.
0: Thank you for joining us, Dr. Bonato. It's been a pleasure
1: to have this conversation with you. Thank you very much for having me here. Thank you.
0: Next time on Think Research. The new surgeon will pick up
1: this plant, place this over... The brain or skull or wherever you are during the surgery, and it will tell you the navigation system it will tell you
0: exactly where you are in the map. Dr. Nobuhiko Hata of Brigham and Women's Hospital discusses his work with image guided surgery and biopsy. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.